Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. One of the so-called minor prophets, not minor because their work was any less important or substantive, Um, the prophets indeed were the voice of God to his people. So Hosea, just like any other of these prophets, had an extremely important job. We call them minor prophets just because their books are shorter. That really is what it comes down to. Uh, Isaiah has, you know, 60 chapters and Jeremiah is long, you know. And then you get to these these prophets whose books are, you know, two chapters, ten chapters, five chapters. Um, And so Hosea falls into that category. Um, We don't spend a lot of time in Hosea, but as I was thinking through, knowing, of course, that this Sunday is the final Sunday of 2019, and so we'll turn the the calendar to 2020 uh, before we're together again, um, I was thinking uh, of something that I might say or or some some, uh, uh, encouragement or challenge you might find from God's Word that would uh, help us in the new year. I don't know if you're all sort of big New Year's resolution types, um, but it's a, it's a natural rhythm of life and not an unhealthy rhythm of life, I think, to, to sort of pause and take stock of where we've been and how we've grown and ways we've struggled and, and to look uh, ahead and make some, some plans or set some goals or, or, or things like that about ways that we want to grow or things we want to pursue that we haven't pursued, etc. And so... Well, I'm, I don't think a New Year's resolution is in any sense like a requirement for, you know, godly living. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it so long as we come to the goal setting and the ambition of a New Year's resolution with a, a gospel foundation uh, underneath our feet. And so um, I was talking with Lindsay a few days ago and going, I'm not sure exactly where to, where to go here. And she suggested, hey, how about Hosea 6, 6? Uh, and so as I went to, to that verse and, and thought uh, on it a bit, I thought, yeah, this is, this is a pretty good place to be. So you could thank Lindsay next time you see her um, for uh, pointing us in this direction this morning. You know, the, the New Year's resolution thing is, uh, it can be so frustrating, right, and so challenging. It's almost a joke by this point uh, to, to think about how, how, uh, how long it takes us which is not long, usually, to fail in our New Year's resolutions, right? So you'll set some big goal at the beginning of the year, and by February, you're already kind of like off the wagon, right? So um, it, it's, it, you'll see jokes and memes on social media and things uh, that, make, uh, that make light of that because we so often uh, don't follow through with our own uh, goals and plans. And, uh, and I, we might wonder why that is. Why do we have such a hard time you know, setting goals. Why do we have such a hard time sticking to the things that we see are important and want to do? Um, why do we so often fall short? Um, and so I think it's good for us to recognize even at the beginning of a new year, even as we're making these resolutions and setting these goals, to recognize our weakness, to recognize our frailty, um, and, and to not think that we must measure up, so to speak, um, in terms of our relationship with God and uh, our acceptance with Him. And so I want us to, to get a sense of what's going on here in, in Hosea 6. 
And there's just a particular exhortation or two in these verses that I think um, could really help us in, in looking toward the new year and setting goals and, and really prioritizing what we ought to prioritize and what we think, uh, what I think the Lord would have for us. So in the book of uh, Hosea, Hosea uh, was a prophet, as I said, who ministered uh, during the period of time where um, Israel, as we spent most of last year, or this year, excuse me, not quite last year yet, uh, we spent most of the year in 1 Samuel, where the, the monarchy, the kingship was just getting established. Um, so under David and then his son Solomon, the kingdom would be one united front. And then shortly after that, the kingdom would split uh, into a northern kingdom that's called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. Actually, Hosea will say Ephraim a number of times. He's referring to the northern kingdom and a southern kingdom that was called Judah. So you'll see Israel and Judah both uh, in various texts in the Old Testament. That's because the kingdom of Israel itself split uh, after Solomon. Uh, and so the period of time where Hosea is ministering is during that, that divided kingdom, and it, things are getting really bad. Like there's been a long time of uh, unfaithfulness and idolatry and the people turning away from God. And we're so familiar by now probably with the rhythms, right, in the Old Testament of the people of God uh, wandering away from him and God judging them in some way, sending, uh, you know, a foreign power to overpower them or something. And then they recognize their error, their ways and repent and come back and God blesses them again. And then it all just starts over, right? Um, some the theologians call that the, the cycle of apostasy. Uh, so if you want a fancy term for that, there it is. Um, that's the returning to God and then turning away from God and back and forth we go. Which is not an altogether unfamiliar pattern probably uh, in our own lives. Most of us probably struggle with those, those same things. Like we'd love to say that we're always just in, going in the right direction and spiritually enlivened and uh, you know, pursuing God wholeheartedly all the time. But the truth is, more often than not, we live in seasons. We have seasons of growth and, and energy and, uh, and, and faithfulness and seasons of drought and spiritual weakness where perhaps we've even wandered uh, astray from, from the Lord. And so back and forth we go. So Hosea uh, has the ministry of basically calling out to the people of God, uh, both pronouncing judgment and also uh, calling them to return. And so the, the text in chapter 6 is this exhortation to return. In fact, I'm, let's just read the first six verses of Hosea chapter 6. I'll read these for you. And we're, we're going to zero in on, on verse 6, but we'll, we'll hit on some of the other things as well. But let me read for you verses 1 through 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. 
For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And he goes on to say, but you've transgressed the covenant. You've wandered away. So in verse 6, what I want us to zero in on is these two phrases. Steadfast love and knowledge of God. This is God sort of speaking to his people, his wayward people, and saying, this is what I have desired of you. And indeed, this is your, your end of the covenant, right? Steadfast love and knowledge of God. If you were to turn back uh, a couple of chapters, you would see in uh, Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, there's an accusation by the prophet Hosea that comes to the people that says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, and here it is. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And then he goes on to say, uh, to list all manner of ways that they're living out of step with with the covenant and with the ways of God. They're swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, adultery, bloodshed, etc. All right, and on and on it goes. But the controversy that he says he has with his people is there is no steadfast love and no knowledge of God. And then in chapter 6, when he's exhorting the people to return, he says those very same two things. I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so I think there's something for us in those two phrases to maybe help frame how we think about setting goals for ourselves, how we think about ways we want to grow or whatever uh, in the new year. And that's those two ideas of steadfast love and knowledge of God. I'm actually going to flip-flop them, and we're going to look at knowledge of God first, and then we'll come back to steadfast love after that. Um, But I wanted to spend just a few minutes reflecting on these two uh, categories, these, these two things that God desires from his people. He desires their steadfast love and he desires their knowledge of God. So let's start with knowledge of God. He's already accused them in chapter 4 of there being no knowledge of God, and now he's telling them in chapter 6, verse 6, that he desires there to be knowledge of God. Uh, and then he says, even rather than burnt offerings. And so he sets apart, we'll come to this in just a minute, but he sets love and knowledge up against the, the sacrifices and offerings that the people are bringing. So when we're thinking about what is a knowledge of God, what does it mean to know God? I think there's some, some, uh, some passages uh, elsewhere in the scriptures that can really help us to understand this. John chapter 17 is one uh, key place. This is in uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Where, and he says in John 17, verse 3, well, let's back up just a little bit. So beginning in chapter 17 of, of John, he begins to pray, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus is speaking there of eternal life that he's going to give to his people. And then he defines what that life is in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
in, in the mind of Jesus, knowing God is the essence of eternal life, right? And John, earlier in that book, in chapter 3, had said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then Jesus defines that eternal life as knowing God, what Hosea dubs the knowledge of God. It's the very essence of eternal life. So Jesus, excuse me, John 3.16 is essentially telling us that those who believe in Christ will not perish, but will know God, right? If you just put the, the definition of eternal life in its place, they will not perish, but will know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so the knowledge of God is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to what it means to be a Christian. It's central to what it means to have the gift of eternal life that he's given. Now we know in one sense eternal life is, is something that will fully and finally be realized later, right? After uh, death, after the return of Christ and the resurrection and all that, right? But eternal life begins right now. It begins when we place our lives in the hands of Jesus and we turn to him in faith. And so eternal life in the sense of the knowledge of God is something that we pursue and experience even now in this life. So knowing God, well, what does that mean? The knowledge of God is not, we, 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 we tend to pit these two aspects of knowing God against one another. Sometimes people will say, um, to really know God, you have to experience him, right? It's, very, it's personal, it's relational. So, when, so some people will even highlight or emphasize the importance of knowing God in this personal way over and against uh, like theological or doctrinal truth about God. And so they'll say, it doesn't matter how much you know about God, we want to be concerned with knowing God in a personal, relational way. And there's certainly truth in that. And then people on the other side may say uh, that, well, how could I possibly know this God in a personal way if I haven't uh, learned who he is and I haven't studied the scriptures and the doctrines and things to find out what he's like? And there's truth in that as well. And so I think uh, one exhortation I'd like to give here is that the knowledge of God is not merely doctrinal, right? So it is important for us to have in mind uh, we want to grow to know God as a person, because that's, he is a person, three persons, actually. So we, we want to get to know him better. But the way that we do that, at least a way that we do that, is by knowing about him, is by learning from him as we go to his word. And so the knowledge of God is not merely doctrinal, but it is not less than that. It's not less than doctrinal. Uh, it is true that one can know much about God while his heart is far from him. And I've known people like that. And in fact, there have been times in my own life where, I, where that's tr probably true of me, where the study of God and his word became more of an academic exercise than something to fuel my own faith in him and love for him. So that is a danger. And it's certainly true that somebody can be very theologically uh, astute and well-read and understand great mysteries of the faith, but be hard-hearted toward God. 
That is certainly a danger. It is, it is true. But it's equally true that a person's relational knowledge of God, that is that intimate, personal, experiential knowledge of God, will not outstrip his doctrinal knowledge of God. In other words, if you say theology doesn't matter, the word of God doesn't matter, I don't need to know things about God, I just need to pray and experience him, then your personal knowledge of God will be distorted. It will be skewed in some way because it's not going to be based on real, objective truth about who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. And so it is important for us to see uh, that, that knowing God in a personal and a relational way starts with and is founded upon a true and right understanding of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. So as you're looking at New Year's resolutions, maybe here's one. Study theology. Read hard books. Learn doctrine. Maybe find a friend, find somebody in the church, and say, hey, I want to read something that I've never attempted before, um, and it's, kinda, it's thick, and I'm not sure I'll be able to handle it, but maybe we could do this together. And, and read something together that will help you to learn something about God and his ways that maybe you haven't seen or understood before. Wrestle with biblical teaching and truth. Don't let your assumptions about how God must be shape your relationship with him. Because if, if we're relating to God in terms of how I assume that he is, then our relationship may not be with the true God at all. It may be with some version of him that we've sort of made up. And so we need to be very careful about that. Allow your expanding knowledge of God and his ways to develop your relationship with him in ways that you can't manipulate or manufacture. Again, it's, it's not impossible to fake a relationship with God, especially if that relationship is founded upon flimsy or no real um, doctrinal truth about who God has revealed himself to be. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we're, as we're looking at the knowledge of God and, and looking into the new year and setting goals for ourselves. How can we know God better? What can I do? What can I pursue? What can I read? What can I learn that will help me to know God better? There's one other aspect of the knowledge of God that I wanted to, to point out, and this actually comes from uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7 God, through Jeremiah, says this, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, or they shall return to me with their whole heart. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They will return to me with their whole heart. This goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning about recognizing our weakness, recognizing our limitation. The truth is that really knowing God or really having the desire to know God has to come from God. God has to stir that desire in our hearts because we are wayward. We are inward. We are, we are inclined toward self all the time. That is a battle that we fight. First Peter chapter 2 tells us that the passions of our flesh wage war against our souls. So that's where we live. And so if we're going to be inclined toward the Lord and we're going to want to know him better, it's going to be because God has done this work and, and stirred us and inclined our hearts in that way. 
a wayward son's return to God is predicated on the stirring of God's heart within him. It is the Lord who will give them a heart to know. So this should empower our prayers for ourselves, for our fellow church members, for friends and family members. We should be confident to pray, God, give me a heart to know you. Give my family hearts to know you. Give my friends, my church members, my pastor a heart to know you. We should pray this way for ourselves and for one another because we trust, A, we know we need that stirring. If we're really going to be inclined to press in to know him, we need him to stir in our hearts. And we know that that's that's what God wants, right? He says, I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is something that God wants for us. So if we're praying that he would grant, that he would do the work in our hearts that we know he wants to do in our hearts, we can be confident that he'll answer that prayer. So as we're looking to setting goals and making resolutions, ask yourself this question. What can I do in the coming year that will help me know God better? What pursuits, what disciplines, what relationships, what customs could I begin to employ or investigate? What books to read that would help me to say a year from now, when it's December 29th, 2020, I know God better now than I did a year ago. That ought to be how we frame the, the question of resolutions and, and setting goals. Not just, how can I be a better person, right? How can I be a better version of me? That's not really what we're after. What we're after is, how can I know God better? Let's ask that question. And then get creative (laughs) about how we answer it. What are some things I can do or some things I can try that might help me to get a better, deeper knowledge of God as he's revealed himself to be? And so that I might know him truly as he is. So, That's all I want to say on the knowledge of God. So he desires the knowledge of God. The other thing that he said he desired in Hosea 6.6 is steadfast love. Some translations say mercy. Say I desired mercy and not sacrifice. The the Hebrew word behind that is chesed, which means like loving kindness. Often it's translated, if you read the NASB, it's almost always translated as loving kindness. Uh, But steadfast love gets that same the same idea. It is an unfailing, an unshakable, uh, a faithful love. And usually, more often than not, chesed refers to God's love for his people. So it's, and it's clear and simple and, and makes sense to say that God's love for us is steadfast and immovable and faithful. But in this verse, what he's actually saying is that he desires on the part of his people, steadfast love for himself. So he's saying, I have desired that you would love me, that you would have a steadfast love for me rather than merely sacrifice. And that's a little bit uh, more, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for here is. It's a little bit harder for us to, to, to understand because if I look at my own life and the condition of my own heart and my inclination toward him and my obedience to him, and how, I'm not sure I could use the word chesed 
most of the time, right? An un, an, a steady, faithful love. Like really my love for God come, goes in fits and starts and sometimes it's hot and sometimes it's cold. Like that's kind of where we tend to live. But this is what he desires from his people. He desires a steadfast love for him. So what does that mean? What, what does love for God look like? Is that just warm, fuzzy feelings about God? When I think about God, I, I, it makes me feel happy. Is that what love for God is? That certainly can include that. I wouldn't want to minimize that. I do think that our affections for God ought to be inclined and, and heightened as we consider him and his ways and his gospel. But I think that love for God is most plainly revealed in obedience. It's revealed, in, it's revealed in, in, in purity of heart. Not a mere outward conformity, but inward transformation leading to righteous fruit. I think this is what he is after. And I think this is why he contrasts steadfast love and knowledge of God with sacrifice and offerings. Because obviously he's speaking to Old Testament, Old Covenant Israelites here. So the sacrifices and the offerings are required. Right? They're part of the law. God instituted that and required them to do it. So he's not saying, I want you to break one part of my law because you love me so much. That's obviously not what he's saying. He's not saying um, that, uh, that I'd rather you love me instead of doing, you know, obeying the law of, of sacrifice and offerings. What he's saying is, if you're merely going through the motions of sort of outward ritual obedience— we just go to church. That's just what we do. We sing the song. That's what the guy asked us to do up front. We just we sit and listen to a sermon because that's what people do in church on Sundays. Whatever. If we're just going through motions, but our hearts are cold toward God, are far from him, we're not inclined toward him, we're disinterested in him, and actually we're secretly maybe living in disobedience in some way, God says, I, I, I don't want your outward worship. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your songs. I don't want your church attendance if that's all it is. He's not saying those things are bad. Those things are good. But they're only good if they're coupled with a heart that is inclined toward the Lord and a life that is faithfully seeking to live out obedience to his commands. The Puritan Matthew Henry says, uh, says this about this uh, verse. God's controversy with them was not for the omission of sacrifices, but because there was no justice, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God among them. And to teach us that the power of godliness is the main thing God looks at and requires. And without it, the form of godliness is of no avail. Serious piety, holiness, in the heart and life is the one thing needful. And separate from that, the performances of devotion though ever so plausible, ever so costly, are of no account. It doesn't matter how many religious things you do if it's not coming from a life of devotion, a heart that's his. Jesus makes the same connection. In John chapter 14, he told his disciples, if you love me, you could probably fill in the blank, you will keep my commandments, right? That's obedience is Jesus's love language, right? You know, the love, some people receive love best by gifts or quality time or whatever. Like, God's love language is obedience. That's the way that he receives love, by 
a life that is yielded to him and doing what he commands. Obedience in private devotion, in moral purity, in evangelistic, in evangelistic efforts, in a walk of faith and trust in God. This is what he's after. So when he says that he desires steadfast love, he's not just talking about how we feel about God. He's talking about how our lives are oriented. Are our lives oriented around serving and obeying God? Is that our highest priority? So in working out New Year's resolutions, ask yourself this question. What can I do in the coming year that will cultivate a deeper love for God? And maybe you can even translate that by saying, what can I do that might help me to be more obedient to God's word? Maybe there's accountability relationships that you should begin to pursue that you never really have. Maybe there's particular uh, weaknesses or struggles or sin patterns that you need to invite somebody to help you with, to pray for you about. Maybe it's a, a, a practice something that we, you know you're really supposed to do, but you more often than not just don't. Maybe it's uh, you know, evangelism or like just finding opportunities and taking opportunities to speak of Christ. Maybe it's something like, I really desire to grow in obedience in this area. What, whatever it is. And then think through conversations you could have, books you could read, people that you could invite in, uh, prayers you could begin to pray, whatever, uh, that list could go on that might help to cultivate that deeper love for God and, and uh, challenge you to a, a more faithful obedience to Him. So, knowledge of God and love for God. It really comes down to obedience. This is what God desires of us. So often, I think, our, the goals that we set for ourselves um, are, are, too, are too short-sighted. We think, I'm going to get into the gym more frequently, or I'm going to eat a little better, or whatever. Like, we have these goals, and I'm not saying those things are bad goals to have, but we often have, in our minds, we don't connect them to how are those things going to help me to know God better, or to love God more deeply. And if, we, if there is no connection to be made there, then we're off course. We need, we need to... to start from this place. My desire, God's desire is for me to know him. God's desire is for me to love and obey him. So that should be my desire for myself. So whatever goals I set for myself need to cultivate love for God and knowledge of God. And the final note I'll make here is just another comment about our need, our desperate need. So it's one thing to make this long list of goals and resolutions and I'm going into 2020 all fired up because I'm gonna you know I've got all these great things that I'm gonna do and I'm gonna kick all these bad old habits and I'm gonna you know read all these great books or whatever it is um but again we if we go into the year with this sort of um with our eyes on ourselves and our own sort of willpower and just must trying to muster up enough strength to get things done we're gonna be disappointed and it probably won't take very long before we're disappointed because we're weak and we need him. And this is where God's grace meets us in our need. Look back at the very beginning of chapter 6 of Hosea. We read it earlier, but I want to go back to it. So, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Right? So, 
He's, the judgment of God comes with his healing and mercy on, on the, the back end of it, right? He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Look at this, verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. As certain as the rising sun, God will come to us. He will meet us in this endeavor. If we turn our hearts toward him and we're praying, God, give me this desire for you. Give me the heart to know you. Give me uh, the ability to to grow in obedience and, and faithfulness to you. We can be sure that God will meet us in that. He will come to us as the dew comes to the earth. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is his his posture toward us. He wants us to be inclined toward him. And when we incline ourselves toward him, he rushes to us. He will meet us. And that verse there, verse 2, this notion of uh, death for two days and then being raised on the third, he says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now the two days of death here is sort of a poetic way of describing the season of drought and judgment prior to God's merciful restoration. So the third day that God would raise them up is when he would return to them and restore their fortunes and their place and and bless them again because of their repentance and turning back toward him. And so the the two uh, two days of death and then the third day being raised up has its own function here. But it's pretty difficult as a Christian not to read those verses and hear an echo of a future resurrection, right? There, there's, a, there's a prophetic echo here. Not that I think Hosea even had that in his mind or understood that, but I think in God's wisdom and in God's uh, thoughtfulness in the way that everything would fit together, I think he intends for us to see After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. I think he intends for us to see in that an echo of Christ and his own death and resurrection, where we're told, of course, that he was buried uh, and dead for two days and then on the third day raised to life in accordance with Scripture, right? And so we're, we're supposed to have our eye here, I think, on Christ and on his fulfillment of Uh, of this, uh, of the resurrection hope that we need, which is just a reminder to us that our ultimate hope of growing in knowledge and love for God is that Christ has made every necessary provision for us to know him. Christ took obedience on our behalf. Christ went to a cross to take our sins and God's wrath against us upon himself, and God was, and Christ was raised up On the third day, Paul tells us he was raised for our justification. So we can be made right with God because Christ was crucified and raised. And in the resurrection of Christ, as we are united to him, we are raised in that same way. We are raised now in a spiritual sense that our hearts have been quickened and enlivened. And we have this inclination now. We struggle still, but God can incline our hearts toward him. Because Christ has been raised. And one day in the future, we will be finally, physically, fully 
raised and with him for eternity. So as we're looking into this new year and setting goals for ourselves, let's, let's prioritize the knowledge of God and the love of God as the, the framework for how we make those decisions and how we set our priorities. And all the while, let's remember that because of Christ, we have everything that we need. He has made every provision for us in his life and death and resurrection to press on to know the Lord. Let me pray for us.